have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn to the book of Mark, chapter 10, as we continue our journey through the book of Mark. And as Mark has explained the ministry of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God was the whole purpose Jesus came. He said, the time is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. So it's been preached, the kingdom of God has been preached to people. It's been proven by signs and wonders. Even in the transfiguration of Jesus with Moses and Elijah, it was demonstrated that the kingdom of God is here. So Jesus now has completed his lesson on riches with the rich young ruler and the whole story and talking about riches are not a pathway into heaven. And he talks about salvation. He talked about the power of God to save. Now he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Luke even rephrases it at this point. He resolutely set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. So now he's headed to Jerusalem. And so Mark records as they progress toward Jerusalem a third time that Jesus tells the disciples what exactly is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. What's going to happen to Jesus when they get there? His humiliation, his arrest, his crucifixion, his burial, and even his resurrection. But his disciples, for the third time, miss it. They don't get it, they don't understand it, and they continue, with all three times they've done this, they are continuing to compete for the top dog position in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and now in chapter 10. So listen as I read this passage to you this morning, and we'll break it down. Starting with verse 32 of chapter 10 of Mark. They were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom, as a ransom for many. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for this passage. And as, as hard and humbling as it is, as, as difficult as it is to fathom us doing these things and being committed to this point, we know that by your spirit, by your power, we can because you have changed our souls. You have made us followers of Jesus Christ. So guide us this morning as we look at the greatness of Christ and learn how we may imitate that greatness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're looking really here at greatness defined. And that's why I just titled the whole sermon Greatness. It's all about greatness. And Jesus is defining it. He tells his disciples for a third time about his death and his resurrection. And they still don't get it. They still are looking at their own earthly greatness. They're still trying to figure out their own earthly greatness. How are we going to be great? Well, Jesus gives us God's definition of grace, greatness right here. His definition, God's definition, and how we can achieve it in our own life. Believers are called to this greatness. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to pursue this type of greatness. So what is the measure of greatness in God's kingdom? Well, greatness in God's kingdom comes in two selfless acts here. First, suffering to death. Jesus suffers for greatness. Look at verses 32 through 34 again. I'm going to read those again for us. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and he will rise after three days. So Jesus is explaining this again, and he's heading for Jerusalem. So he's, he's coming from the east side of the Jordan River, headed west on the Jericho Road. And he's not to Jericho yet, but he's on his way. And he's, he's ahead of them, which is unusual for Jesus. Jesus usually walked with them. It, talked about, it talks about in several times in the Gospels, he's with them. He's next to them. He's part of like a shepherd would be. But he's ahead of them. And and he's headed there to Jerusalem with such determination and intentionality, it begins to worry the folks that are with him. It bothers his disciples and his followers. It appears that he's marching to conflict. He's headed to battle. And he is. He's not looking like a shepherd, but a conqueror. See, understand right now, at this point in time, this time of the year, it's Passover season. Well, that doesn't mean much to us as... Americans and non-Jews, but then it meant a lot. Passover was one of the three times a year Jewish men were to bring their families and present themselves at the temple of God. So there are crowds on this road. Jericho Road was a famous kind of King's Highway kind of thing. So there are crowds just thronging up to Jerusalem. And Jesus is leading his little crowd, which is the 12 disciples, and then there were several people that were just following Jesus. Who knows why they were following him? Maybe because he was a good teacher. Maybe they just liked hanging around Jesus. But they were staying close to Jesus. And then they react with amazement and fear. The 12 are amazed. They're like, okay, so he's going to Jerusalem, and he's overtly going to confront the Jews and take them on and then take on the Romans and, and set his Messiah kingship up. Wow. I thought he'd have done this a little more covertly. I thought we'd have been a little more subtle attack on, on, on Jerusalem. But the disciples, they've vowed to go to the death with Jesus. And so 
Jews are watching out for him at this time. The Jews are looking for Jesus to come to Jerusalem during the Passover. And you know, the thing about it, we need to understand from the book of Mark, since chapter 3, verse 6, a conspiracy against Jesus has been brewing. A conspiracy to kill him. The Pharisees, who are the devout Jewish religious leaders, have begun to work with the Herodians, who are total Romans. They're totally like on Rome's side. So it's a very odd set of bedfellows, but hey, they got a common enemy, and that usually brings people together. And that's Jesus. So this conspiracy has been brewing for three years, and Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to light the fuse. He's not turning back from it. Now the other followers, the other crowd that's with Jesus, they're scared. You know why they're scared? Because a Messiah-like figure walking into Jerusalem kind of almost implies an insurrection. And Rome hates insurrection. If you read any of Roman history, you'll find out every time an insurrection would start in one of their provinces or towns, they would squish it violently. And they didn't care who they killed. They would kill the insurrectionist, the leader, but they would kill everybody around them too if they had to, to make sure they snuffed it out. So they're scared. Uh, Rome won't tolerate this. They're gripped with fear. And Jesus senses this. He's not insensitive to this. He senses that they're probably, they're probably beginning to lag behind him. He's like, let's stay away from him in case like lightning strikes or the Romans show up so that people don't associate us. But he begins to sense that apprehension. And he pulls the 12 aside. He pulls the 12 disciples aside to give them a little instruction. Jesus uses every opportunity he can with these disciples, and he wants to explain it. For the third time, he's going to tell them what will happen. Not what might happen, what will happen. And why? Well, the, the 11, not Judas, but the 11 need to know because they will be apostles one day after the Holy Spirit comes. They will be apostles, and they will be establishing the church in Jerusalem and throughout the world. So they need to know, kind of understand one more time, what Jesus is going to face and why he's going to face it. And Judas needs to know because he's got a part to play in this too, even though it's a, it's a dastardly part. It's not a part we are happy about. But Jesus uses the term, he, he says, see, we're headed to Jerusalem. He says, the Son of Man. This is a term Jesus has used regularly in the Gospels to refer to himself. It's a third-person phrase. It comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, where the Son of Man is a person that God hands dominion to, that God sends to earth to save people from their sins and to have and rule. So it's understood by everybody in Jewish religious culture who the Son of Man is. It's the Messiah. And Jesus uses this term often when he's referring to himself. And God will send this man to redeem humanity. To redeem humanity by condemnation, by humiliation, by crucifixion, and by resurrection. So that's what the Son of Man title. So if you ever wonder what that title means, it's an Old Testament term um, that Daniel uses in chapter 7. So Jesus tells the disciples he will be, will be these things. Listen, he will be betrayed. The Bible, these, several translations uses the word handed over, but it, also the word, the Greek word can mean betrayed. He will be betrayed over by Judas, one of his own, one of his 12. By Judas, he will be betrayed over to the Jews. And they will try him illegally, completely illegally. Trials don't happen at night in Jewish uh, criminal law. And he will be condemned to death by the Jewish leaders for blasphemy. Then he will be betrayed over to the Gentiles or the Romans. 
He will be betrayed over to the Romans. He will be mocked. He will be spat upon. He will be flogged. And he will be killed. He's telling them flat out that's what's going to happen. Now, Jesus didn't just pick some verbs out of thin air to, de- to describe what's going to happen to him. These verbs all are from prophecies in the Old Testament. If you want to write these down, I'm going to give you the references. To be condemned, Isaiah 53. He will be mocked, Psalms 89, 51. He will be spit upon, Isaiah 56. He will be flogged, Isaiah 28, 18. And he will be killed, Isaiah 53. And that's just to name a few. I didn't have time to look them all up. There's a bunch. So these are specific prophecies that Jesus is going to have fulfilled because of what the Romans are going to do to him. So the Jews are betraying him to the Romans. Why do the Jews send him to the Romans? Because the Jews can't kill anybody. The Romans always, always kept the right to capital punishment for themselves because it was a way they could squish insurrection. It was a way they could keep cultural laws from becoming out of control and riots developing. They're the only ones that could perform that capital punishment. But even the method of how Jesus is going to die was prophesied by crucifixion on a cross. Deuteronomy 21-23, on a tree. The same word for tree in the Greek is the same word for cross. He's going to be killed that way. And the Romans were masters of it. Jesus makes it real clear, crystal clear, that it is that he is going to Jerusalem to die, to suffer, to be humiliated for the sins of the world. Why else would he do this? Well, death is necessary. See, death is necessary for the curse that's on humanity. The payment, the remission, the ransom for sin of God's wrath requires blood to be shed, requires a human life. And to make it where it's permanent, it has to be a perfect human life. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem for that very reason. And every time that Jesus tells them these events, he also tells them he will rise. There's always hope. There's always hope in Jesus Christ. He tells them every time. He even tells them a fourth time that he will rise after the transfiguration. So they, they're missing that. They completely miss that. They never seem to grasp what resurrection or rising means. Now, they've not seen Lazarus raised from the dead yet. That's about to happen. In John's, in John's gospel, we, don't, we won't see it in Mark. But they've seen other resurrections. They've seen the resurrection of Jairus' daughter here in Mark. But they've also seen the widow's son raised. They've seen a whole bunch of other people raised from the dead. But for some reason, this idea of a man rising from the dead on his own puzzles them. Puzzles them beyond comprehension. But the reality is that true greatness will be rewarded with life after death for Jesus. There is life after death. That's the point. Jesus lays it out plainly that suffering, serving others by dying to self is the path to greatness. If you ever wonder how to get great in God's kingdom, Jesus sets the perfect example. And many have died in the kingdom of God for works and doing work, and they will be great. Someone once asked if William Carey, we would see William Carey in heaven. And they said, no, probably not, because he'll be so far to the front. He was the father of modern missions. He will be so far toward the throne of God, we'll never see him, because he'll be down there where God 
places him. We hear stories all the time of people dying to protect or sacrifice or save others. I mean, great stories, but people are sacrificing their lives to save a, a temporal life. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, but it's not the greatness that God desires. It's not. I mean, Jesus speaks often of the greatness of his sacrifice, that it was all of his purpose and his decision to do this. He said, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's John 10 17 through 18 in the chapter on the good shepherd he tells people what he's going to do he makes it very clear there and he makes it clear that he's doing it he's laying down his life he's giving up his life for the sins of humanity matter of fact he tells the disciples in john 15 13 greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends and jesus did that for us so we see from jesus's example here that true greatness that being first and the kingdom of God never involves the world's ideas of what that looks like. Never involves how the world does greatness, okay? Rankings, popularity, our net worth, our possessions, they never make anyone great forever. Each of those things and each person that depends on them for greatness, they wind up in the dustbin of time, never to be seen or realized again. The greatest person in the world was not recognized as the greatest person in the world until he died. Nobody knew until he died. You realize that? Dying for the sins of others equates to greatness, and that's what Jesus said there. It's, it's eternal supremacy, not something that's temporary, and that's what he did. And I want you to look at the description of his humiliation and his death. Because if we don't keep that fresh in our minds, we forget what he did. We, we take it for granted. Look at it. He tells them, I did this for you. I was mocked with violence. He was. And we're going to read that when we get to the account in, in Mark. He was mocked with violence. He was spit on in hatred. It was hatred, pure hatred that they spit on him. They flogged him within inches of his life. 39 lashes with a whip that's diabolical. It has nine extra tails on it with pieces of glass bone, rock. They shredded his back. And some people believe he shredded his front as well. He was flogged within inches of his life. And then he was crucified. Then he was crucified. Had to carry his own cross to Calvary. He was crucified. Crucifixion. I don't think there's a more torturous way for someone to die ever devised by humankind. It's, it is the most torturous method of, of killing someone, I believe, known to mankind. Just imagine bleeding out at the same time you're suffocating. Because that's how it was designed. That's what happened. You eventually suffocated. And in Jesus' case, he was bleeding out, which is why he died so quickly on the cross, which surprised Pilate. Jesus did that. He volunteered to pay this price for our sins against a holy God. And that is greatness. And see, I can stop right here, and we know enough to pursue that. We know enough that that's the way we should pursue greatness. But fortunately, we got the disciples, and they give us a great illustration of how wrong we can be, of how opposite 
we are in Jesus' thinking. The second act that we do for becoming great is a selfless act of service. Only selfless service gains eternal greatness. So I'm going to read again for you verses 35 through 45. And it's kind of funny that this happens right after Jesus explains how he's going to die. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered, allow, they answered him, Allow us to sit at your right hand and your left in your glory. Well, Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, <laughs> they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it's not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Right after Jesus tells them of his humiliating sacrifice that's about to happen, James and John showcase their complete ignorance. <laughs> and, and I think we would too. These sons of thunder, as Jesus has named them, made a dreadful noise about pos position and prestige. Pride and arrogance pollute their minds right now because they still think there's going to be this earthly kingdom. Jesus encourages their misguided prayer, which is kind of what they're doing. Do, do, the, do whatever we ask. Well, Jesus says, I'm not going to write you a blank check, but what do you want me to do? So they tell him. You know, Jesus always hears our prayers, but he doesn't answer sometimes because we're making the wrong request. We're asking the wrong thing. Sometimes he waits for us to figure out the right thing to ask. So they ask for the right and the left side of Jesus in his kingdom. Places of honor and glory in an earthly kingdom. That's what they're asking for. That's, that's their mindset. The glory of an earthly king is what they're looking at. So they really have missed the whole concept of God's kingdom here. They really missed it completely in what Jesus has just told them. They're looking for a Messiah that defeats earthly foes, not eternal woes. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for someone who's going to beat Rome back, correct the, the Pharisees so they stop condemning everybody and polluting people. Now, even if it was from a motive of wanting to just be near Jesus, that would be okay, but I don't think it is. It still has a wrong focus. John Calvin actually says that this request they make is kind of like a bright mirror of human vanity. <laughs> we, we can see our vanity so clearly in the way they're approaching Jesus about this. And it reflects a very hideous image of self-service and self-promotion. So Jesus answers their request with a question. Could they possibly earn, could they possibly deserve these positions, these spots? You know, he does this often with my prayers. He asks me a question instead of answering it outright. He makes me think a little bit more about my request. 
So he does this with James and John. And then he uses two metaphors to test these men. Will you be able to drink the cup I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And these are not positive things, okay? First of all, the cup is a metaphor from the Old Testament that references the wrath of God. Anytime God's wrath was displayed or God's wrath was coming, it was mentioned about a cup of God's wrath. And, and the wicked will drink it to its dregs, one passage actually says. Jesus will use this same reference again in Gethsemane. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. So it's not a good thing. The cup usually is a reference to God's wrath. Baptism also carries the idea of suffering and judgment, an overwhelming flood of tragedy and calamity. And that's used in the Old Testament as well. Probably not the word baptism, but the way they use the word flood several times. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus actually uses the, the word baptism to describe what he's doing. I have to go and take the baptism that I'm meant to take. So what Jesus told them will immerse him in the full brunt of God's wrath. He's, he's giving them a picture of what I'm about to go through. Can you go through that? <laughs> and they answer, well, yes, we can. Kind of cocky, isn't it? Kind of arrogant. I can, yeah, we can take that. We can handle that. They have no idea what there's... That's what he said. You have no idea what you're asking for. Sure, we can. Really? You know, they will fail several times before they actually do drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism that Jesus is baptized because it actually does happen see but going through any of this facing these kind of tests of the cup and the baptism that you can't do it on your own strength it's impossible with man but not with God with his Holy Spirit we can face these things we can get through these things and James and John did that and matter of fact Jesus gives them a little glimpse into their future you will you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized. You will drink the cup I, I am drinking. James was the first apostle martyred. In Acts chapter 12, he was the first apostle. He was beheaded by Herod Agrippa just because Herod wanted to. Really didn't have a, a justifiable reason. Then he put Peter in prison, but he, Peter escaped miraculously, and that's another whole story. So James is the first apostle martyred. John is punished by imprisonment, by beatings, by exile, by isolation, many, many, many times over. Eventually, he's exiled to the island of Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. And I don't know if that's where he died or not. No one really knows where he passed away. But yes, they will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism. And Jesus gives them that little glimpse. But then Jesus clarifies the future of the right and left seats. These are reserved for whoever God decides is worthy of them. And I, I'm not even about to guess. They're prepared for it like God prepares everything. Nothing's, nothing's happenstance with God. It all comes from his hands. And Jesus foretells that there are people that are prepared for it or will be prepared. And I'm, not, I'm sure they don't even know that they're prepared for those seats. Until that day comes, those people and those people are revealed. Jesus wants us to serve him and he wants his disciples to serve him where they are. Don't worry about those seats. Don't worry about who's going to sit there. Now the 10, the other 10, they get wind of this little conversation they've had with Jesus, and they get upset. They get angry. Part of the reason, I mean, I think it's the only reason, they were jealous. They weren't, they weren't like, well, who do you think you are? Or, or that's not God's definition of greatness. They're like, why didn't we think of it first? All of them were probably like, why didn't I go to Jesus first and ask this question? 
the group had been discussing it. See, this is not the first time they've, they've come across this topic. Go back to chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. They had talked about who was the greatest, and Jesus caught them and asked them, what were you talking about on the way? And they didn't want to tell him because they'd been talking about who was the greatest. But they hadn't settled it yet. And here's James and John preempting everything. They're going to Jesus and trying to ask for the spots of honor. Just like us. Just like us. We do this kind of stuff all the time. Jesus, so Jesus, being Jesus, once again, he uses their blunders to educate them, to train them, to teach them a little bit more about the kingdom of God, which is the whole reason he's here, the kingdom of God. Jesus has been telling them that the world's order and the world's form of ruling and reigning is not the kingdom's form. It's not the kingdom's way. Jesus uses a, a very direct and clear illustration here to illuminate, the, to illuminate the point. Worldly honor comes differently than kingdom honor comes. So he goes to this, hey, you know the Gentile lords, they, leaders, they lord it over them. They act like tyrants, people of high position. He, he gives that that the power and strength gain authority in the world. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And you know what? They can recognize very clearly what Jesus is talking about, there, that the Gentiles do. They lord it over them. They were afraid of the Romans. They were afraid at every turn. They, they recognize this. Yet even in that recognition, they can't stop pursuing that kind of authority, that kind of greatness. They still want to do it, you know? Even peasants want to be lords and kings. They may not like the ones they want, but they think they can do a better job if they're given a chance, but that's not the way God's kingdom works at all. Jesus makes it very clear. Serving is supreme. Serving. And high position is for the server, not the, the one being served. First is last, and last is first. Prominence is like that of a child, the humility of a child, a servant, a slave. <clears throat> so let me define these terms that Jesus uses here, a servant. A servant speaks to a domestic indentured slave, if you will, who serves for a living under obligation. They've obligated themselves to their master. A slave is better known as a bond servant in, this, in, the, in the Bible, and it's basically an owned servant, someone that's been bought. And I know how we feel about slavery, but that's exactly what went on. And they had no choice but to serve their master. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, to serve like that, to be a slave to everyone that we need to be, that we come in contact. We are called to be a servant and a slave to all who come near us. All who come near us. Jesus makes it clear. Be humble like a child. Serve like a slave. Give up all your idols. See, Jesus is looking for his followers to have the same attitude as he had. Paul says in Philippians 2.5, have the same attitude as that of Christ, who though he was God, didn't think it was something to be grasped and hung on to. He served them. He washed their feet. He washed the feet of the band that was going to betray him. He taught them about the kingdom of God, and he died to satisfy the wrath of God against the sins of humanity, the wrath of a holy God, he gave all he had that he had in human form. He gave it all. He didn't leave anything on the table. He gave it all. Just like he described above, 
the humiliation and the crucifixion and the condemnation and the tortuous death. And then he says something pretty remarkable. The Son of Man, the Son of Man even came to serve as a ransom for many. Now, ransom's not used very often in, in the New Testament in terms of the Greek word. So let's look at it a little bit, but it's, it's a, this is one of the few places that it's used. It's a price of release, ransom. We know of it used in kidnapping terms, but there's also back then it was used as a price of release. Someone who was a slave to someone or owed someone money and was under their indentured servitude to that person, someone comes along and pays that debt and he releases that slave, releases that captive. And Jesus' death did that very thing. He released us from the curse of sin and death for those who believe in him. Jesus' death pays to set his people free. Every person in the world has that bounty on their head. Every person in the world has a ransom price on their head. And the only way it could be paid was Jesus Christ. And Jesus paid it all for those who believe. And then he says, I became a ransom for many. Well, this, this word, we just read it as for many people and we get that. But it has a little better meaning in the Greek. It means in place of. It means instead of them paying for it. And it's a clear sign of substitution. He substituted himself for us voluntarily. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was sufficient to redeem, to purchase, to release many captives, many prisoners, many who were in bondage. Selfless service is God's total idea of greatness. And Jesus calls the disciples to this, as well as us. Selfless service. You know, 10 of the 11 disciples died a martyr's death for their faith, eventually. When they became apostles and they began to carry the Christian faith throughout the globe, all, 10 of the 11 died. Only John was exiled and died a natural death, we believe. And Paul captures the idea of service and selflessness being the path to true greatness. In Romans chapter 14, he says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What a great perspective to have on life. Not to be worried about what our life is going to be like or what we're going to do with our life or how we're going to be remembered. We serve God completely knowing that it's for him, and he'll take care of the rest. So there's three lessons I think you can take away from this last part of this passage. First of all, division is definitely going to happen when you start vying for prominence, when you, people start arguing about who's number one and who's number two. The disciples were on their way to a very divisive argument. James and John and the other ten. They were, they were about to come head to head, but Jesus stepped in and corrected their thinking to tell them that service, selfless service, unites us. No matter who gets the credit, no matter what happens, when it's done as humble slaves, it can unite us. The second thing to take away from this is that the world's ways are not to be mimicked or followed by believers. We need to look to Jesus, not the way the world does something. We, we went through this probably back in the 80s and 90s of people trying to set up churches like like corporate organizations. That's not the way God's intended for it to be. 
We don't have a CEO of the church. Jesus only calls leaders who will serve the people the truth. And when we serve people, whether it's material and physical needs, we get, get a chance to share the gospel with them. We get an ear from them. We get an audience to, to show them that there's a better way to live. First is last in Christ's glory and should not be, really be a pursuit of his followers. That we shouldn't worry about who's first and last. We shouldn't worry about left and right sides. Serving and slaving, giving and helping people is God's way. And that's what he's called us to do in the office and the context of your life. And finally, the lesson we can get from this is, as a follower of Christ and a child of God, we should not care about firsts and seconds. We shouldn't care about who's the greatest. Jesus is the greatest, and just stay with that. Receiving the grace of God in Christ is enough of a reward and honor for eternity. Because of the gospel, we all have the power we need in Jesus to do this. We can't do it on our own. The gospel comes from a position of strength, and that's what we need to lean on, the gospel. In 1 Peter 4, Peter is telling the church he's writing to that when we serve, we need to serve as if we're serving with the strength of God, not our own strength. So that when we serve with the strength of God, people see that, and they give glory to God and to Jesus. Let them see your good work so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. So serving doesn't degrade our position in the kingdom. It doesn't make us less of a follower of Christ. It actually helps us. And it doesn't undermine God's authority. So if you're serving someone, it doesn't make you a lesser person. Jesus served like this first. He set the example. So imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. As a song says, he gave his life to pay for the ransom of our sin. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves us. Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So now, we serve the Lord with gladness. We proclaim his great love to the world. That's what we're called to do as believers in Christ. As we remember, oh, how he loves you and me. Jesus suffered to serve us, and he now calls us to suffer and serve him, our Savior and our Redeemer. You know, at the end of time, there will be a group of people in heaven, a very large group of people, by the way, and they will be singing a song too. This is what they're going to be singing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now that's greatness, submitting ourselves to Christ so that we can be part of that crowd singing that song at the end of time. Jesus paints a very detailed portrait of how he's going to die sacrificially for us, to pay the ransom for our souls, for the sins that we've committed. He only asks us to take our little short, vapor-like lives and serve him selflessly. Serve him with all we can, give all we can to those around us. 
give them the same gospel that saved us. That's all he asked for. So this morning as we take our time for our pastoral prayer, let's, let's pray for God to make us more aware of our salvation, to make us more aware of the cost Jesus paid, and that we may find strength in him to serve in whatever capacity he puts us in, to do it selflessly, to not worry about the credit, to remember it's all of grace. So let's take some time to do that. Pray. We'll pray silently. If you want to come to the front and pray, feel free to do that. We'll pray for a minute or two, and then I'll close us out. So let's pray.